Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from the Centralverse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number three. We've got two segments on the show today, both of which I am delighted to say I will be accompanied by uh, the excellent Stephen Kelly. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about some of the uh, race for uh, the next Fed chair, the Powell renomination uh, drama from the last week. Uh, and then we're going to switch uh, for segment two to talking about the the Fed's kind of bread and butter issue. We're going to take a look at uh, at changing interest rates at the increase and uh, kind of the situation that we'll expect around that um, in the next couple of years. So there's been some chatter about that that we're going to get into. Uh, but let's start by checking in with the uh, with the Scottish teens over at Predict It uh, in the last week. Uh, Jay Powell's uh, standing has increased, actually, from around 75%, uh, Brainerd around 20%, to Powell around 85%, and uh, Brainerd down to about 12%. So uh, a little bit of a, a change in whoever is making those predictions. Um, I, you know... It, I'm going to start uh, today's conversation on on this drama uh, by just we laugh and I and I laugh every time they do it and the folks at 5:38 laugh every time they bring up predict it, uh, but there is something there that I wanted to mention right off the top and that is it's a point that uh, the morning money uh, folks over at Politico brought up have brought up this week uh, they've been doing great reporting on this uh, on this Fed chair race um, and that is that there is a there is something to wanting to signal ahead of time who the who the pick is going to be, or in other words, uh, not wanting to surprise uh, mostly financial markets uh, by the decision. Um, uh, so, Stephen, I'm going to bounce that over to you to respond, uh, and then uh, and then next you can talk about. Uh, there have been some some chatter about uh, Yellen having an opinion on uh, on this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, first, I feel like I need to say that uh, since you're talking about predicted every week, I kind of feel an obligation <laughs> to say I have no financial stake uh, in any predicted market that may be coloring my opinion. Uh, but but yeah, so uh, th- this we, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but but uh, you're absolutely right that the communication for a change in pick uh seems like it would have started already. If, if the administration was thinking seriously about somebody other than Powell, it seems like we would be hearing more, um, you know, a source close to the White House said this, uh, you know, we'd be hearing other names and hearing other thoughts, and we, we really haven't. That being said, I, as we discussed uh, last week, I think markets can handle Brainerd just fine. Um, you know, the, there's there's very little daylight uh, between those two from a from a monetary policy perspective, as we discussed, or really any of the potential candidates. So that's maybe the counter argument here is, well, markets will be fine no matter no matter who's picked. You know, there's there's no Kevin Warsh on the table. There's no Judy Shelton on the table. Uh, there's no John Taylor on the table. So yeah. that's maybe giving the administration a little more leeway than than we're used to or than, you know, we've seen in recent history. But uh, again, I think there's something to that, that morning money point of, uh, you know, hey, there, there would, we would be hearing more if there was a change in the works. Um, and what we've heard, as you noted, is really just 
from Yellen. You know, Bloomberg broke the story over the weekend uh, that Yellen was generally in favor of Powell, though not ex- you know not explicitly saying so. We heard from folks in the administration that Yellen was in favor of reappointing Powell. Um, so that creates a new headache for the administration if if there's not, you know, if that wasn't an intentional, uh, you know, information relay, which, you know, maybe it was intentional, maybe it was it was some sort of leak. Um, but that would potentially create a headache if it weren't true or if the administration was thinking about going another direction is now there's the public debacle of, okay, Yellen clearly favored something and Biden went another way, uh, which isn't, isn't a good look for the administration and nor do I think that they would desire to do that. So, so the Yellen news, while, while um, perhaps shallower than, than market watchers would have been interested in, you know, it's not an explicit endorsement. Uh, the Yellen news is definitely pushing in favor of Paul. And maybe that's what, uh, you know, we've seen in the predictive markets over the last week. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And uh, you outed yourself as not in predicted and I'll just out myself just to be transparent. I have my entire retirement savings on, uh, on this race. So, uh, so this is me, this is, this entire podcast is just me trying to goose the markets. Yeah. Well, uh, you, cut, you cut me in and maybe my opinion will change. There it is. There it is. There it is. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's that. That's all. That's all a, a huge and an important point. And I, and I do want to say on on this next point that uh, I do want to acknowledge that there is other stuff going on, um, both in the world uh, and and also economically. And we'll also touch on the econo- or on the the stuff that would affect the economics directly here in the country. And that is mostly just the the delta the delta variant um potential future variants as the vaccination rate in the united states but even more kind of importantly as far as new variants are concerned around the world are are really slow and then the new and emerging science that uh, i am definitely not qualified to talk uh, to opine on but the the it looks like we're going towards needing booster shots which implies that the the vaccinations you know don't hold their their uh, effective rate quite long maybe as we had hoped back in the spring. And this goes back to our earlier conversation about, uh, you know, there's it, we're at a more tenuous situation now than we were uh, even a couple of months ago. And I think, uh, and, and from what I'm reading, and I'd be curious if you think otherwise, but I think more concern about the, the, the near-term economic situation uh, the more tenuous, the more uncertain it is, uh, that favors a the stability pick. That that favors Powell. Yeah, yeah, I think that's mostly right. Again, I'm a, a little skeptical of all this t- tying of the issue of changing somebody to some sort of volatile event. Um, you know, to me, like a worst case scenario in the markets, if say Biden goes from Powell to Brainerd is maybe there's like a one day sell off in the 10 year treasury bond. I mean, that, that's another Tuesday uh, in the markets. That's to me, that's not clear. That's something we need to care about necessarily. Um, so I'm, I'm in general, I'm a little skeptical of, of tying this decision um, to some sort of broader volatile event or that it, it's going to be some sort of huge uh, unrecoverable shock. 
Um, but it, as we discussed last time, there there is something to be said of we have a proven crisis leader in Powell. Um, but Brainerd was was right there at his side as well, you know. So um, there, there's it's certainly the safer call. But uh, you know, I, I think it, it would be a bad look if Biden were to change who he's got at, at the head of the fed. And then the fed does something wrong. Um, you know, what, whether Powell and Brainerd would make the same mistake or not would maybe be irrelevant if the fed does make some mistake after Paul, after Biden removed Powell. Um, so again, that kind of lends itself to let's keep Powell in place. We have a proven leader, a proven track record, uh, in crisis, but, uh, yeah, again, it, it's, it's, it's a, a shallow argument, I think, that it would be some sort of undigestible change and that the situation is too delicate in the economy for, for a change between, say, a Powell and a Brainerd. Sure. And, and that is also a definitely, that's a, a super important, important take. Um, and I think the only thing I'd add to that is the, the combination of needing not only or, or wanting not only to placate markets and so if if you feel that or and not you not you but if the administration feels like they they want stability they don't have to pick pick Powell necessarily uh, but they also need to get the 50 the 51 or I guess they need to get the 50 the 50 senators as well mm-hmm. and so they're playing that it may not matter to senator or it may not matter to markets or it may not seem like a big change to markets. Uh, and it actually, I actually completely agree with you that it actually wouldn't be. Most likely it's not going to be that big of a difference between the, these two leading candidates. I wonder if that perception though continues in and is uh, shared by members of the Senate. Um, and I think they're a little bit more sensitive to the, the views and the, the perceptions and, uh, and, the politics angle, which ends up having a circular kind of, we're in just the circular game of it affecting, affecting both sides. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and, and Paul has been vetted. I mean, they, both Paul and Brainerd have been confirmed obviously, but Paul sure. has regularly and recently been uh, functionally vetted in that he gets brought before Congress on a regular basis is asked to explain his statements and the, and the feds actions. Yeah. Um, so that all that stuff kind of can't get get uh, dragged out to, to the same extent it could with Brainerd. I mean, that would it would definitely be a more bruising fight uh, with Brainerd, which would at the very least delay uh, you know any certainty on the Fed chair situation because they would Congress you know so the Senate would take her her speeches on climate and take her sure. speeches that that are more progressive and it would just it would that fifty fifty split would would. Uh, become much more delicate for sure which if it lasts long enough could uh could maybe create some uncertainty but even even in that situation i'm I'm hesitant to tie it to these other i mean the other thing the other thing that's been going on the last week is there's been a lot of talk of tying this issue as as some sort of easy win or something for biden well he's got this other stuff going on he's got the budget bills he's got the afghanistan situation which which isn't reflecting super well on him uh, in many circles. Um, and I don't know how much I buy that. I mean, that, that to me, that take is from somebody who's super 
uh, news focused. You know, I don't, yep. I don't know that I see somebody, somebody in the general public tying those two issues together of oh, Afghanistan's a nightmare, but at least, at least we have a stable Fed chair. You know, I, I just, <laughs> I don't buy that at all. Uh, yeah, that, that that that's some sort of political whatever. I mean, I, I, I there's something to be said of Biden's not trying to make enemies in the Senate right now, and and Powell's the easier way to go. Uh, but that was already the case, irrespective of whatever the other issues uh, that are going on are, which there's always something. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely I completely agree with that on the uh, there's there's been this this summer in economic data has been a really interesting one, setting aside even the uh, the new variants and the potential for uh, for the end of the pandemic not coming as quickly as we anticipated. And that's just with you know, a, a lot of interesting and, and different and unexpected inflation readings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wanted to talk about uh, the scapegoat that the Fed can become for inflation. And I wanted to get your thoughts on which direction you think that goes. Does the, is it more and I, it's it's the answer is obviously it's a little bit of both. But does the administration want to uh, own uh, own that and and say, look, there's been some inflation, so we're going to switch it out, or do they do they lean more towards the opposite side in that we want to keep we want to keep them so that if things get worse, then uh, then we can blame the Fed as being not from our side. Uh, I think that using inflation as a scapegoat could go in either direction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I, this is again, a situation where I, I don't see anyone being satisfied. Um, this, this is this argument of, um, you know, the administration's kind of waiting to see whether Paul's right on inflation, that it's transitory. Um, they, they just don't have time for that. I mean, the, the decision is going to be made in the next couple months and, and, and uh, Gina Smilik made this point on Twitter on Twitter this morning. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, August twenty fifth. Um, that that again, we're getting maybe two two more inflation readings um, before this decision is going to be made at the most, uh, which is not enough time to to decide whether or not this inflation has been transitory or not. Um, but this kind of goes back to who are you trying to satisfy? Um, the general public or or sort of insiders slash experts. So if if let let's say we we blame the Fed for letting inflation um, you know kind of kind of live as high as it's lived, um, or we think it's problematic, replacing Powell with anybody who's seriously a contender, you know whether that's I mean it's it's basically just between Powell and Brainerd, but yeah. you know whether that's Sarah Bloom Raskin or somebody else. There, there's no monetary policy daylight there. Um, so close observers like you and I aren't going to, aren't going to think, okay, this is, this is Biden doing something serious about inflation. He's, he, you know, he's taken a head from the fed and uh, he's installing somebody who's going to do something, you know, th- there's no Volcker shock to follow uh, putting Brainerd in that position. And yep. to the casual observer uh, to, to just the casual, you know, person experiencing inflation, I don't think the chair of the Fed is a big enough head to axe. I mean, it's, it's gonna, they're going to blame Biden. Um, you know, I mean, my siblings, yep. if they're, they're going to blame Biden, they're not going to say, Oh, well, at least, at least he can the, the head of the federal reserve, which, you know, as the name of this podcast suggests, most folks think is a, is a forest out West. I mean, it's just yep. not, 
it's not a big enough head for the general public and it's there's not enough monetary policy daylight for folks following this closely so i i don't see powell being an effective and as as mentioned there's just not enough inflation readings between now and when this decision is going to get made uh which is likely next month if not october at the at the latest um so I, I don't really see that argument as being a good one that that Powell is, is going to be some sort of scapegoat on, on what happens with inflation in the near future. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's uh, the inflation readings at most are going the way the degree to the, which that impacts the decision has to be a a calculation based on do we want and how much does it matter that uh, the Fed chair was somebody we picked versus somebody that we didn't pick. Yeah, and right. you know, and like you said, I mean, both of these, and they'll, and it'll be about the, you know, how how much do they care about the political spin? Um, but as regarding to the the uh, the siblings comment, that is a hundred percent. It reminds me uh, as far as who's going, who is the general public going to blame, and it is going to be the president. It reminds me there's a great. Uh, there's a great magazine cover of from Newsweek from the uh, from the 80s, uh, and it's a it's a picture of a dragon, and I'll include in the show notes, and we'll tweet it out. But it's a it's a picture of a dragon, which is representative of the inflation, and then a knight, a shining knight on a on a big white horse, uh, jousting the dragon. But the dragon defeats the knight, breaks the joust, and uh, uh, the person, the knight is is Carter, is President <laughs> Carter, the knight. Is, the night is not Bill Miller or or Arthur Burns or 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 Paul Volcker. Uh, it's, it's it's the president, and so I think you're. Uh, I think that point is is really well made. Right, right. Uh, no one's going to look past the cover with the dragon on it on that issue. That's for sure. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are very very few people that are reading the details. Much less are going to read the details and remember uh, where that's going. So. And okay. I mean, the general public only gets to vote for the president. They don't get to vote yep. for the Fed chair. So that's that's the other thing is, no matter who you blame, you only have you only have one mechanism, you know, by which to uh, to enforce some change there. So exactly, and the way that the nominations have worked, I should know this, but at least since I think the '80s, and you may know the the I can't remember which which law it was that changed this, but the you know the Fed chair uh, comes up the year that the new president shall term uh, begins. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you've got, uh, or excuse me, the year, uh, the year after the next presidential term begins. And so you've got, mm-hmm. you're still far away from any presidential elections anytime mm-hmm. the, the chair decision is coming up. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that was enough uh, exciting drama on the Powell renom uh, front. And let's move on to segment two. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, raising interest rates, which is the, uh, like I said at the at the top, uh, this is the Fed's um, bread and butter. For a long time, this was pretty much all that the the Fed uh, did in regards to what made the news. Um, but there, but we're going to talk about it because uh, there's some interesting big picture stuff happening right now, and there's some interesting conversations going on. Uh, a few members of the FOMC have, have spoken up. Uh, we're at interest rates are at the the, the floor right now. Uh, uh, but uh, there is talk about what and when do we raise rates? Um, you know, the last uh, dot plot uh, projection, uh, f- which are not actual projections, but kind of given ideal situations, what each member of the FOMC 
uh, thinks the direction is going to go. Uh, and at some point we'll have to do an episode about dot plots and, and how, how useful they are. Uh, but there were a few people that had um, 11 of the 18 members predicted no uh, interest rate increases next year, but seven did. And then into 2023, five uh, said that they were predicted there would be no uh, increases if they were in full control. Um, and the, the uh, 13 did. A few specific members have spoken out about it. Uh, the vice chair, Clarita, uh, predicted a 2023 thought would be an appropriate time to increase. And James Bullard, uh, who is the president of the uh, St. Louis Fed. And you always, when reading these, got to look at when they will be voting. Um, he will be vote. He's not voting now. Uh, will be voting in 2022. Will not be voting in 2023. He thinks uh, interest rates are going to rise in 2022. Uh, so that is important because he will have a vote uh, in every meeting in 2022. Uh, so I'm going to start, let's kind of start broadly and then I'll let you go as specific into any angles that you like, but, you know, can, can the fed raise rates? Uh, how far can they raise them? Uh, you know, what conditions are they looking for, uh, when they go to start and, and stop interest rates? Yeah, I think, uh, the important thing when answering this question is to remember that, and, and this is something that often gets lost in, in especially cr- pundit critiques of the Fed, but even in, in, in some coverage of the Fed, which is really that the, the Fed is trying to meet the market. Um, the Fed is trying to take rates where the, and I, I say the market, I mean, I mean, you know, financial markets, funding markets, the labor market, where the economy um, can really handle. Uh, so the, it's often characterized as the Fed is sort of manipulating interest rates, um, you know, that the Fed is exercising undue discretion over interest rates. And, you know, we can get into some of the uh, effects of, of too high or too low rates, but um, really the Fed is trying to support its goals of, of full employment and stable inflation. So the conditions for which it can raise rates can exist and hopefully will exist, you know, you know, sooner rather than later, but um, it's less the Fed manipulating and more the Fed following uh, uh, where the economy is at. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a, that's a fundamental econ 101 uh, misconception and, and, and not just econ 101, uh, but like you said, in the, in the press and the Fed, uh, and it comes from the Fed itself often in these metaphors like the like the punch bowl and mm-hmm. uh, and metaphors uh, like like that. So as a as just to kind of set the stage, remind us what happened the last time we raised interest rates. Uh, just give us the kind of the, you know, the one or two minute version of, of, of what that looked like. Yeah. So the, the Fed took rates to zero in, in uh, 2008. Uh, where they where they basically stayed until the very end of 2015, uh, the Fed had kind of telegraphed a, a coming rate rise uh, a little bit earlier than that, and there was some some volatility over the summer that that sort of pushed it back, um, but more or less talked itself into a rate rise at the end of that year. Uh, projected several rate increases in the following year, which did not come to pass. 
the sort of projection uh, basically created its own volatility. The Fed hiked once in 2016, again, again in December. Um, and then it, it, it eventually kind of steadily raised rates throughout 2018. It never, or up through 2018, rather, it never reached uh, so much as 3%. Uh, before it, it, it had to start reversing itself. We saw a lot of volatility uh, in 2018, just mar- market-related volatility. Um, clearly saw some feeling that the Fed had overcorrected. And basically, the, the Fed walked back several of those interest rate hikes um, in 2019, which, you know, w- there, was, there was very limited, less than 2% uh, on the monetary policy front as far as rate cuts available in once, once COVID arrived. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was a situation where people were kind of begging for higher interest, not everybody, uh, but th- there was a lot of misconception over full employment and Paul has been great about owning up to this, that basically the fed up the fed estimates of full employment were, were uh, for, w- included much higher rates of unemployment than, than we ended up seeing ahead of the pandemic. Um, and, and we're part of the reason the Fed could reverse course without uh, consequences on the inflation side. And, um, yeah, I mean, even even when the Fed p- kind of overdid it and, and pushed too hard, we never even saw 3% interest rates, which uh, I think makes people nervous. I mean, in, in past recessions, the Fed has cut rates 400, 500 basis points. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously can't do that when, when rates don't even even make it to three to 300 basis points. Yeah, and and that you know that always take it'll always take uh, uh, an important clarification when you when looking as we get too many more years into the future when we're looking back at the at the at the at the charts at the historical charts uh, we'll we'll see the plateau of interest rates being risen to three and then we'll see it it drop off and and it'll it'll look like uh, you know kind of a, a falling falling. Uh, and then it'll just drop off a cliff mm. and it'll be an important point to all future uh, people talking about this, that though that that fall in interest rates, there were two halves, very, very different reasons mm-hmm. uh, for for doing that. Uh, but let me ask you, Seth, can you go just a little bit more or talk about what, you know, why did it, how, why did they have to plateau? How, what was it that made them think that they had overdone uh, the the interest rates at a level significantly lower than it had been in the in the past. Is there something you know about that three percent level? Is that do do people think that's a new a new ceiling? And uh, we can talk about the consequences for financial panics and th- that reason. But let's kind of set that aside for now and just talk about on the way rising as mm-hmm. the Fed is rising raising interest rates and what are the things that they're looking at to determine if they've hit when they've hit the ceiling yeah well i i I certainly hope that that no one is is expecting that three percent or or thereabouts is some sort of new ceiling i mean why it became a ceiling is that it's just that the fed went too early i mean there there wasn't enough of inflation and there was too much labor market slack and 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 the fed um, you know, didn't know that at the time. And, and what we saw when it reversed course was, whoa, there's a lot more labor market gains to be had. So, um, you know, that I, I hope that that's not our expectation of how this can go in the future. And it's kind of this weird um, 
sort of paradoxical truth that the best way to get higher interest rates in the future is to have lower interest rates today. Uh, you know, it, it stands to reason that yep. absent the pandemic, the Fed could have gotten to four, five, six percent uh, on the Fed funds rate safely if it had run the economy hot before that. Um, so it was precisely because it, it started raising rates when the, when the economy was still in too delicate a phase that we started seeing, you know, bad labor market readings and, and more extreme financial market volatility when, when the Fed did raise rates to two and a half and 2.75%. Um, that need not be the case. Uh, and, 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 you know, the Fed, the Fed has, has sort of subscribed to this argument that it, the that it needs to do the things slowly, that there are consequences to doing it, to raising rates more quickly. Uh, it's softened a little bit on this with the new framework and, and waiting to see inflation before it, it starts to uh, raise interest rates. But um, there's certainly still an appetite to go slowly on interest rates, which uh, you know, may, may run the risk that the Fed does go too early uh, due to its appetite to move slowly. Uh, and there are various reasons for that. And we can get into that, but um, you know that 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 still remains the risk, but there there certainly is no new ceiling that that uh, the the Fed can't overcome by being more patient. I mean, we're seeing inflation now. It's not clear that it's sort of a, a structural phenomenon. It's it's a lot of it's related to reopening, um, and is in specific reopening related sectors. Uh, but in the event that the Fed runs the economy hot for longer than it has in the past, we can get to 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 higher interest rates. And that that's only become more in the spotlight as the Fed has has started this new framework where it, it's explicitly said it's going to be more patient. Yeah, and along that, uh, talking about the the framework, that uh, it seems to be one of the, and, and I think this has been appropriately discussed in the in in the media and the in the uh, Fed watching world, and that is that this really is a test of this new framework. And that, uh, you know, it's, it's not the test the Fed wanted. Uh, it's, it's not the timing that they, that they wanted to be, uh, to be pulling this out, but it's, but it's what the, it's the timing that they've, that they've been dealt. And these comments about, uh, from, you know, this, this, it's a nature of a 19 member, member committee. Uh, but, but these comments are, are beginning and are only going to get, uh, get more heated and not to bring it back to the, uh, to the uh, to the Powell debate for too long, but uh, the job of chair at this point, there's also you know if we've divided our discussion into or if we have I think helpfully provided this uh, you know wartime and peacetime uh, Fed chair, there may be a, an important uh, different uh, type, and that is uh, or tree recovery or a recovery, mm. uh, a recovery Fed chair. And that is something that I think, you know, when, when Yellen was being vetted as in the public's at least uh, view, a lot of, she got a lot of, caught a lot of slack for uh, her, this 2015 interest rate increase. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, this decision of, of how to raise interest rates and when to raise them uh, is a challenging, uh, is, is definitely a challenging one. Uh, I, kind of a specific question is a simplistic view, partly based, I think, on 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 the last experience and sometimes by uh, 
poor communication by the Fed. There's some, there's often a view that you gotta finish that you gotta finish all the emergency stuff, emergency liquidity stuff first. You'll close that down, mm-hmm. and then you'll stop the quantitative easing, and then you'll and then you'll go to interest rates. Uh, talk to me about mm-hmm. that flow, and if it's uh, how much of it is you think is accurate, how much of it is is not so accurate. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. To me, it doesn't seem inher- inherently necessary, but I-, I-, I totally get the logic of it. I mean, the-, the the interest rate increases are the most potent tool of the Fed from a macroeconomic perspective. Um, so, of-, of course, there's going to be no rate increases till till the crisis pass. Um, and so, of course, the the emergency facilities are going to be closed. I-, I mean, I consider those a totally totally separate separate bit. Um, as far as QE goes, I mean, that, that we really measure QE almost, uh, rel- we, we measure QE in terms of, of how many rate increases or decreases it's equivalent to, right? Yep. I mean, when, we, yep. when we think about, okay, what is a trillion dollars of QE do? We say, oh, you know, it's equivalent to, to one, one rate cut or whatever. So rate cuts are really our most potent tool. Uh, so it makes sense that, that we want to use those last. We want to uh, taper and, and, and trim the, the, you know, kind of tweaking that we're doing with QE, uh, before we do something more blunt, uh, uh, with the rate increases. That makes sense. So often that comes, uh, in these discussions about, about raising interest rates is, and this was something that was, uh, you know, John Taylor has lots to say about this and has built his entire career on this. But that is that is is there what are these what are the effects of a of a long period of of low interest rates um, to to banks to uh, to to workers to savers to you know to be different people along along the spectrum. How how should the Fed be thinking about these effects of uh, of interest rates where if, or a, and I remember reading a, a paper projecting that there would be a significant amount of time uh, into the future that interest rates would be at zero. What are the effects of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- I think in general, these arguments are mostly bunk. Um, yeah. You know, th- th- there's a lot to, it can be, there's a shock to the, to the idea of a zero percent interest rate because it's foreign in that it doesn't make sense. How can you have an interest rate? How can you be charged interest, but, oh, you're not being charged any interest. Um, but in, in reality, I, there, there's nothing inherently distinct about 0% versus 1% versus negative 1%. Um, it, it's still the spectrum of interest rates, and it's still, you know, this kind of equilibrating force. Uh, the, main, the main critiques that you hear are, A, this is bad for savers, uh, B, this is bad for bank profitability uh and and see this is somehow you know a financial stability concern and i guess just to quickly take each of them in turn yeah uh, the question of savers i mean it's important that we remember who savers really are in in our economy um you know people who are actually saving money are the wealthy and to a lesser extent some of the middle class Absolutely. Uh, so when we talk about the wealthy you know, you could you can certainly raise the interest rate on their deposit account, but you're going to incinerate their 401k in the process. Um, you're going to incinerate the stock market. You're going to incinerate the corporate bond market. If you just raise rates for the sake of higher rates, um, you're going to destroy these other things around it. So I, I don't buy that argument there. When it comes to the middle class, 
these are the first folks who are going to lose their jobs in a, in a higher interest rate environment. Uh, and that is the worst possible thing for your financial situation for saving, um, for buying a house. Uh, so I, I really don't buy that this is somehow the worst outcome for savers. It, I mean, it's, it's the economy. It's back to that, you know, Bill Clinton era line. It, it really yep. is the economy. And, and this goes back to the point about the Fed is trying to meet the economy where it is at any given time with its interest rate. So we can, you know, whine about the low interest rates on our deposit accounts, but the alternative is, is, a, is a more disaster-like scenario. I mean, it's really the liquidationist view of the economy almost. It's, it's, the, it's the Andrew Mellon view um, that, that somehow just raising rates is, is going to make people better off. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see some stimulus of, of you and I getting a hundred basis points on our checking account instead of zero. That, that interest income is, is not going to be any sort of, uh, sort of net stimulus making anybody better off. Um, so I, I really don't buy that at all. Um, on the, on the note about bank profitability, the idea here is, that uh, you know, b- banks make a profit on, on an interest rate spread. They borrow low and, and and lend at a higher rate, and that lower rates kind of pinch this spread to to some degree. Uh, and again, I, I'm really unconvinced. I mean, it, it's only in this argument, it's only in the case of low rates that all of a sudden the general public is worried about bank profits. Um, <laughs> and, you know, wow. You and I might 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 worry about their profitability in a crisis, and everyone else says, you know, let them burn. And we're saying this is the one time we need them, you know. Yeah. And uh, but when it comes to low interest rates, for some reason the banks have a lot of sympathy. And and in this situation, it's really I'm kind of of the view that they can kick rocks. I mean, if if you can't be profitable across the economic cycle, then then you know you're in the wrong Something business. Something wrong with your business. Yeah. Right. Right. And and. You know, to me, that's not a necessarily a, a huge public policy concern. Um, we have plenty of banks; they're doing fine. Um, you know, there's yep. just—I just really, I'm, I have yet to see an ounce of evidence other than than you know maybe a CFO complaining about a, a smaller net interest margin on an earnings call. Yeah. Uh, this this really just doesn't concern me. There are other ways uh, for for firms to get credit. Uh, there are plenty of banks. They're plenty profitable, uh, and 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 you hear you hear this in both when rates are going both directions. Also, when when rates are going yes. up, I mean, this this goes back to the point of the best way to get higher rates in the future is to have lower rates now. I mean, the banks operate on a, a maturity transformation on short low rates and and higher long rates, so keeping rates lower for longer should be good for that spread because you have higher, you, you know, you have higher rates in the future, you have higher inflation. Um, so you, you hear this argument about bank profitability, no matter which way rates are going, if, if the fed is raising rates, well, then the yield curve is flattening or inverting and, and there's no profitability to be had. And if the fed is cutting rates, it's like, well, low rates automatically mean low bank profitability. Um, but their funding is as cheap as ever right now. Uh, so th- there's a there's a liability and an asset angle here, and it's not clear that low rates, you know, impinge only, you know, any worse than than higher rates do on, on bank profitability. Um, and then I'll just say briefly, uh, the, the other big thing is financial stability. And this idea is that, uh, you know, low rates push investors into riskier assets. 
and that, you know, you run the risk of bubbles here. And to some extent, it's important to remember that that's also kind of the point. I mean, that's what QE is designed to do is, is push investors out the risk curve and out the, out the term curve. Um, so to some extent, that's the point is, is really just lowering risk premiums in general and encouraging investment, uh, you know, real investment. And the other thing to remember is that overpriced assets do not a financial crisis make. I mean, the, the, the most recent example, obviously, is 2008 and, and the housing crisis. And it's not just that house prices were high and then they fell and that was the crisis. I mean, there was unbelievable amounts of leverage and short-term funding and there was fraud and all these things. Uh, so again, it, it kind of comes back to, well, how, how much of a public policy concern is that? Is it that some market is maybe a little overvalued? Uh, you know, and then there's, of course, the debate of whether rate increases are really the tool to deal with that. Uh, the right. Fed has other has macro prudential tools if it's really concerned about specific markets uh, that it can use. So to me, none of these really uh, are convincing enough to to really move the needle on, on rate increases or, or really make me more concerned about the consequences of lower for longer as opposed to raising rates too soon. Yeah, I think. And that's and that's an important take because because these arguments come up again and again and having gone to uh you know I, I was in my undergrad years right as the the crisis ended and and then uh for the next five or six years and these you know from a very conservative small town western uh western city and these arguments were brought up uh again and again and again uh one more that i'd uh just to uh bring up one of the debates that, uh, or not debates, but one of the, the points or other groups of people that a college professor uh, more on the, on the crazy side would bring up. And that was uh, uh, retirees who, who may s- stand in that category of middle-class that they have, they have, if they have money um, that has been, you know, if they're not just, uh, waiting on on social security mm-hmm. um, and they've projected a certain level of of, of interest to be expected over a, over a period of time and and as that has shifted and I, and I follow a few personal finance people and there's a lot and that you know a big part of retirement planning there again for the people in the middle class uh, that can do any kind of retirement planning a huge part of that calculation is just is what you expect uh, interest rates and inflation to be Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i guess to that i would say two things one is again cash out your stocks and bonds uh if you're if you're unhappy with your your coupon income the the one of the chief critiques of of low rates is how stimulative they've been to to markets (laughs) um so again you know a diversified portfolio is doing more than fine um you know it reacts much quicker than say the labor market to low rates we saw record, you know, S&P 500 numbers and stuff uh, last year, uh, well before the labor market recovered. I mean, it just, it yep. just happens faster. Yep. Um, so there's, there's that. And the other thing is th- that's also a, a, maybe more of a fiscal issue. If we're really worried about, um, you know, supporting our more senior population, that's certainly an important issue. And, but it, it fits better with, with the fiscal issue. I mean, the Fed shouldn't be in the business of, of necessarily prioritizing a, a certain, you know, a certain group like that, 
um, when when the costs are so much bigger to the macro the macro economy. Um, you know, it goes Absolutely. back to that point that yeah, you can you can give retirees a little extra coupon income, but at the cost of unemployment and low inflation, I mean, which are explicitly the Fed's mandate, uh, that's that's a hard argument to make. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think your point from the very top of framing who are the actual people in these different groups and where uh, do they fit in with the broader population, and I hope I think the Fed is. Uh, is keeping tabs on on these and and I think it's a relatively new uh unfortunately in the last you know five years for sure and ten years uh, the fed is paying attention to to these kinds of things uh so I think with that unless is do you have any final comments on the the raising rates uh in today's uh discussion? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll say one more thing. The other thing that that kind of has come up, and um, you know, not to give Larry Summers too much airtime, but he's been raising sure. this point again. Bill Bill Dudley has has raised this point. Mohammed um, Alirian has raised it recently. Uh, this this idea that even if if you are more more concerned about raising rates triggering a recession uh, than you are about say the consequences of low rates, they, they've kind of made the point that well, what if the Fed can't wait too long to raise rates without causing a recession. It's kind of this idea that if the Fed has to respond too quickly to inflation or, or, or other tightness, that, that uh, it, it will automatically cause a recession. And I, I don't know how convinced I am of that. I mean, yes, we've seen recessions follow uh, Fed rate hikes in the past. Uh, part of it, I think, part of or a component to this argument, I think, is how much is the recovery and the strength of the economy built on credit for one? Yeah. Uh, this to me seems uh, certainly the, the economy is going to be more rate sensitive uh, in a situation where you have a credit boom associated with, with a, an economic boom. Uh, so to me, I think that gives us a little more space in the, in the current environment. You know, the, the recovery has really been on the back of, of, uh, fiscal intervention, um, certainly the Fed and all these things, but it, you know, there's not some some necessarily huge consumer credit boom that's being attached to to the gains we've seen in the labor market and the economy. Um, so the fact that it's really been on the fiscal side, which you know has a default risk of zero, uh, hmm. I think gives us more space. And and, and the one counter argument to, to 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 this is is. A point that, um, for instance, Carolyn Sissoko and uh, Joseph Wang, who, who has a great blog, uh, have, have pointed out, and, and Caleb, you can maybe include some of this in the, yeah. in the show notes, but uh, this idea that, well, now the, the Fed is kind of trapped when it comes to raising rates because the treasury market uh, is so sensitive. We have these long-term treasuries that are being funded overnight in the repo market. Um, you know, the, the, the treasury market... The Fed, when the Fed raises rates, it raises the Fed funds rate, uh, but the federal funds market is is not super important in and of itself. It's it's down to like sixty billion dollars a day, yep. um, and that's mostly just interest rate arbitrage yep. uh, 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 for various reasons. But I mean, real bank funding happens uh, elsewhere, particularly in the repo market. Uh, Treasury repos, you know, over a trillion a day. So there's there is this idea that you know, if you raise, if the Fed raises short-term rates, 
that really magnifies the losses to say long-term treasuries, which, you know, can run the risk of blowing up overnight, like we saw in March, 2020. Uh, and uh, there's definitely something to that. And, and that does maybe, maybe lend itself to the Fed moving slower. Um, the other thing to, to, to think about, though, is that maybe that's just us with a better line of sight on, on what's going on when rates increase. I mean, if you read a narrative history of, of past credit booms, what's clear is that the Fed, say, in 2005 and 2006, is raising interest rates and, and the Fed funds market is all well and good, but off in the corners of financial markets, you know, the short-term funding structures supporting the housing market are, are kind of quietly starting to, to, to fray. Uh, so to some extent, the fact that, that the concern over the consequences of rate increases is centralized to the treasury market kind of helps me sleep at night because we know how to intervene in the treasury market. The Fed is very good uh, about that, about it can do that overnight. It doesn't need any emergency authority. Uh, so I, I think there's something to the, the ability of the Fed to run the economy a little bit hotter this time. And I think it has a lot more space than it's had in the past to raise rates quickly if needed without necessarily causing a recession like like some have started to worry about. Absolutely. And the you can see the Fed, the tea leaves of the Fed thinking in this with the new standing repo facility and mm -hmm. which is yeah and, and 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 things that are you can tell that this is on their mind and so the fed is definitely beginning to think about uh about raising rates and there are people that are that are talking about it and and trying to get the right uh the right balance but this is a a huge topic that will uh pretty soon is going after in fact i think after the the chair race is determined this is going to be the the all-consuming this mm -hmm. is going to be the all-consuming discussion for sure so i think we've we've started we've laid we've laid a a good groundwork um and i think we'll we'll leave it at that thank you uh steven uh that was a another great conversation and uh you can uh for all those listening you can get in touch with me on twitter at caleb nygaard uh, and Stephen at Stephen Kelly 49. Uh, I can't say those words uh, without uh, the intonation of, uh, of Joe and Tracy from Odd Lots coming to my mind. Uh, so follow us on Twitter. Uh, and uh, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>